holding my chest, my legs and hands, silence, feeling the pressure. What? She was a fraud. It's a million bloody degrees out there. Oh, wind. I'm sorry if I said anything awful. Blessed lambs of God. Why hadn't he got up to chop the capsicums? I was never a good reader. Ah, Immaculately bland. Anyway, it looks like... What do we do with this now? We're not even supposed to use the word fat. Boys like girls. When we were very young... I was back home in Norwich. Square Sound. You're listening to the audiobook podcast for the makers and listeners of audiobooks. Hello and welcome back to the audiobook podcast. It's been a little while, but it's lovely to be here with Abby Holmes. I'm Justine Sloan-Lees and Abby and I will be discussing what goes on behind the stories in the production of audiobooks. Well, hello everyone. Thanks for joining us today for a new episode. And today it's a deep dive into non-fiction audiobooks. So non-fiction, um, no surprise really, is a growing category and it accounts for about 60% of the titles that are recorded here at Square Sound. We've noticed a rise here, especially with independence or author-direct titles. And according to Global Newswire's Non-Fiction Books Global Market Report in 2022, there's been a rise post-COVID, mainly due to companies rearranging their operations. This is really about somebody was going to the workplace and spending two days doing a lecture about whatever, an expert on something. During COVID, nobody could go to the workplace, so they needed to actually find a way to deliver that same information. So they went to somebody to read the script. And often the person who was going to be delivering the performance wasn't actually up to the read, so it would go to a narrator. So that has meant a lot more work for narrators in this area. And this category doesn't just include traditional publishers. Creators include organisations, sole traders and partnerships and many, many independent writers. So (laughs) there's lots to talk about. Yeah, and you're right. When I think about when I started at Square Sound, it was mostly fiction. We had occasional non-fiction, but definitely more fiction. And certainly, as you say, with COVID and, you know, people did change the way they worked. And I recorded a thought leader title not so long ago. It was the second title she'd recorded here. Uh, And this woman was saying that before COVID, her life was jumping on planes. She spent more time in the Qantas lounge than at home. Mm -hmm. And now that just doesn't happen, that her material is being delivered in different ways through webinars, but also through her audiobooks rather than through face-to-face presentations to workplaces. Mm. And also, I think, yeah, there's just a growing interest in audiobooks of all kinds. So. Oh, absolutely. I heard a, a quote the other day from a wonderful American audiobook narrator called Andy Arndt, and that 10 years ago, 11,000 audiobooks were produced in the States. Last year, 73,000. Mm. 11,000 to 73,000. And a lot of this is because there's a lot of back titles being recorded. All of a sudden they're going, oh, let's do that really big seller from the 80s or the 90s or the wherever because they see the value in audiobooks. And also, as we've mentioned previously in other podcasts, that people who are time poor who might never sit down and read a long non-fiction title are happy to listen to it. So in the 16 titles that I've done, I've only ever done three what I would call non-fiction books. One was called The Altar Boys, and it was about child sex crimes in the Catholic diocese around Newcastle. It was very, very gruelling, but it was incredibly written and amazingly researched. The other one was Lawyer X. That was actually written by two journalists, so the style was was like... Reportage. Yeah, exactly. And the other one was a memoir called The Writing on the Wall, about somebody tracing family history way back to the Second World War. And the memoir is the true story, but it is written in a first-person style. 
So just like any group of books, no matter what you're talking about, the book gives you all of the information about how to approach it. And they're very different from each other. We could just go on and on and on and talk about all of them. Do you want to talk about any of the styles? Well, yeah, there's certainly a lot of self-help and more broadly the thought leadership field, which is what we do a lot of those people who used to be in the Qantas Lounge flying to wherever to present to a corporation. And they're interesting because they'll often have activities or exercises. So they put forward their ideas and thoughts about how one can improve oneself in whatever area we're talking about. And then they'll have exercises at the end of a chapter, you know, visualise this scenario, what would you do? So very often we just find a way to read through that, you know, uh, sort of sometimes say list things, and that still works as a red direction to the ear rather than off the page. Uh, Those titles too, if there's a lot of that kind of exercise or activity, can come with a downloadable PDF So Mm. when you buy the title from whichever platform you use to buy these audiobooks, it will say that this comes with a downloadable PDF. So you then have that as a reference of your own. And then often to the uh, author will refer you back to their own website. So it's very, very common and, you know, it's not at all difficult to deal with for us in the studio. I'd like to ask you some questions about casting voices or people who would suit nonfiction. A lot of people will say oh, non-fiction will suit me because it'll be easier to read. I don't have to do all those characters. What do you think about that? (laughs) Well, it's going to very much depend on the title, of course, but no, I don't think you can say that at all. And in fact, you still often do have character voices, except they're real people. One I recorded recently by the brilliant award-winning journalist Louise Milligan. It's called Witness, and she's talking about people giving evidence in court cases and the way witnesses are treated most noticeably by defence barristers in cross-examination. So she's included extracts from transcripts and she's delivering them in the way that they are delivered in the court proceeding. So, for example, the defence barrister is very badgering and domineering and hectoring and, you know, aggressive in his tone and the witnesses are distressed by this. So there is a degree of performance in recreating that. And also, say if you had a non-fiction book, something with a whole lot of footnotes. I mean, are footnotes usually delivered by that PDF method? I mean, a footnote, by definition, is an adjunct to the text. It's not in and of the text itself. Mm, mm. So then the question becomes, does it need to be there? Or does it provide a bit of extra colour or a moment of lightness, humour in the text, and if so, how can they be integrated and where they should go? Because often you'll have your little footnote number, you know, number two, and the footnote's down the bottom of the page. But where that number is, if you inserted the footnote there, it would break the flow of the text. So often you might just drop it in at the end of the paragraph as a little... Aside. A little aside at the end of the Mm. paragraph. So that really is... It's a question that firstly I think has to go to the audiobook publisher So the client, do you think, and they will take it up with the author, what do you think? And I know I've been in the circumstance of giving my opinions, like, I don't think this is necessary, or I think some of these will work, and I think others won't. And in that case, I can think of a particular title, they they said, look, we'll trust it to your judgment. Yes, right. And also the narrator, you know, we'd come to the footnote and I'd say to him, what do you think? He said, well, it's kind of funny, and it is, you know, it's a nice way to end the thought, and 
So we just slip it in. Or what about this one? That one's really clunky. It's got lots of figures or things like that, and it's not really going to translate well. Yeah, sure. And that's the thing about it, I think. Is it actually going to sit with the tone of the book or is it really a distraction Mm. to the the listener? And that's a performance thing too. That's something that a good performer like you can do that shift, you know, lift out to present this sort of aside or extra material but then come back to the story. Yeah, that's right. We've recorded in the past things like the quarterly essay that's published every quarter by Black Ink, which is always um, a deep dive into a current serious subject in public affairs. I remember doing one on Adani in the Galilee Basin in Queensland about coal mining. They're challenging because there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of research being quoted. There's uh, people being quoted. So then we go back to the thing about finding people's names. As often as possible in all books we do, regardless what they're about, we try to have a channel with the author because really that is the best thing to do. But sometimes the authors don't know. They don't know. And so they're guessing just as much as the next person. So it's about research and knowing where to go and how to find this sort of information so you can get all those pronunciations right. Mm. You know, isn't it true that you really need to capture the essence of who that person is who's writing the book? I think so, yeah. How would you do that in an audition brief? Usually if they're somebody who speaks, you can YouTube them and find out what they say. There's also in the murky territory where you don't want to do an impersonation of someone. Yeah. If someone chooses not to read themselves for whatever reason, even if they are someone with a profile, you don't necessarily want to try and... Do them. Do them. No, that's That's right. sort of heading down the road to nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> slippery slope. <laughs> slippery slope, yeah. Look, again, going back to the open communication with the author, they are asked if they have any thoughts about the type of voice or the way they want things to be presented. Sometimes it's a contractual thing these days, particularly more and more with the growth in this area, that in the past, audiobooks were considered an afterthought and so the publisher just sold off the rights to whoever came asking for the rights. But now it's often very much tied up into a contract and that people contractually say that if there is to be an audiobook, they are to be the reader. You know, I recorded the amazing Melbourne academic Kylie Moore Gilbert a couple of years ago, her memoir about being locked up in an Iranian prison for 804 days. And, well, to begin with, it would have been almost impossible to do with someone else because it was full of Farsi and to try and get someone else to be able to pronounce those, Mm -hmm. even if we'd had Kylie as a resource to provide pronunciations, still a great ask on on talent. You know, about the skills of getting through the language, I mean, there is a difference between telling a story that is the story of your life and then working with information. So, I mean, how do you direct people working with information about how long they take? or Because information delivery, I know, as a voiceover artist, is very different from any kind of advertising commercial that you might do. Yeah, well, you really have to think about pace and pausing in those circumstances. I remember um, I gave this suggestion to someone a couple of years ago and she afterwards said, that was really helpful, thank you. So I've kind of hung on to it ever since. But I said to her, you know that, but the listener doesn't know it. So they're a half step behind you all the time. So you have to go at a pace that lets them keep up with you and not stumble up over some word that you've said. They're like, what does that word mean? 
and that's where pacing and pausing those rests. I don't know if I've mentioned it before in this podcast, but when I was at university, I earned money by being a subject in neuroscience experiments. <laughs> and what that you meant, did. <laughs> of course I did. And what that meant was there was a lab at the university I was at and I would go in there and they would put this uh, helmet on my skull with all these little electrodes that they'd then just screw down into contact with my skull. And then I would be given tasks to perform or things to watch. Like when you go to the eye test and press buttons when you think you see something coming at you. And I remember reading once that an experiment conducted like that showed that when people were listening to orchestral music, their brains showed most activity between movements when there was actually nothing happening because they were resolving what they'd just heard and then anticipating what was going to come. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And so I think, you know, said it before, say it again, never underestimate the power of pause. Well, absolutely. You know, and, and when I'm coaching people and I'm talking to them about why I want them to pause there, I'm always saying you need to look at the information and you need to actually allow the person listening access to the information. I still say that, but I've also moved from a discovery that I've made myself that the most important person in your book, whatever you're reading, is who's listening to it. You know, they are the most important person. So it's all for them. Mm. Sometimes we get books with lots of images. I recorded a couple of years ago Kaz Cook's most recent book called You're Doing It Wrong, and that was a historical snapshot of all the things women have been told they've been doing wrong over millennia. Oh, gosh. And so it had lots of historical images to illustrate the story she was telling. Now, obviously, with something like that, you need to kind of find a way to make sense of it. So that required a little bit of adaptation, but a lot of the photos were then included in a download, again, oh, okay. going back to the download, yep. so mm-hmm. people could see it if they wanted to. Yeah. Well, that would make sense if you had a lot of images in there, yeah. Yeah, I also re- recently recorded Rainbow History Class by Hannah McElhinney and read by the fabulous Rudy Jean Rigg, and... That's a historical look at LGBTIQA plus relationships and communities and stories, which also had images as well. And we included some references, you know, if you want to see what such and such looked like, have a look at our PDF where there's a picture. So sometimes that's really nice for those kind of titles to have those provided for people so they get the full picture, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, speaking of Rainbow History Class, which is Fabulous, and I'd recommend it to anyone. Rudy and Hannah are influencers, and we're getting a lot of influencers through the doors. It's a real burgeoning field for mm. us, influencers who then come and write titles that expand on their persona that they've developed on TikTok or whatever. And that's been a lot of fun, actually, that we've had mm. a real range of them. And mostly they've been fabulous, but I can think of one that um, it turned out that the content had been ghostwritten And the person was really struggling to deliver the content. Yes, I understand that. I came across that a couple of years ago when I coached somebody who was actually asked to read the book. And it was the same thing. It had actually been very heavily edited by somebody else. And it wasn't actually her language. So she struggled with the language, which read fine on the page. And it looked quite authentic and natural, but not to her. That is the difficulty with ghostwriting. Going back to the thing about memoir you touched on earlier, Abby, and often the thing that happens with memoir, and I've just finished recording one, it was very much an instance of this, often people use the memoir form, so their story, 
to explore other stuff that they're more broadly interested in. So in this one I recently recorded, the woman talks about deciding relatively late in life to start taking flamenco dancing lessons. Why not? Why not indeed? Go for it. But then we got a lengthy diversion, which wasn't a bad thing, into some of the history of flamenco and some of the great flamenco dancers. And so that's where you're kind of getting a bit of a hybrid form of like a personal story, but also history. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And I find that's not uncommon at all now. What if it's textbooks and it's that kind of information? What kind of a voice does that? I would find that one really difficult to do. (laughs) Well, I know there's some narrators who express preference for doing that kind of material and others who say, don't ever ask me to do that. Yes. And sometimes it's partly to do with their own personal circumstances. I know I've said this before and I realise it sounds creepy, but we do keep notes on people. (laughs) So, for example... The fabulous Julie Nile, who I've worked with recently on Joanna Nell books, which I'd recommend to anyone. But Julie Nile, you know Julie, of course. I do. Did you know she trained as a high school science teacher? I did not. (laughs) Isn't that amazing, the things you discover? And how long have you known her? Forever. 30 years plus. So Julie Nile trained as a high school secondary teacher, which means that she's really across science stuff. Because I remember doing a book about botany once and the person who narrated it was like, oh, science stuff and, you know, for someone who was deeply bruised by year eight biology and never went back and was really thrown by all the names of, you know, all the names of stuff. <laughs> Molecular you know, all structures, stuff, all stuff, whatever. Yeah. Where Julie's like, oh, no, I'm that's all across easy. chemistry. Like, that's, <laughs> that's easy. incredible. Uh, we did a book recently about the neuroscience of pregnancy and, oh, my goodness, the chemicals and hormones. Going back to the botany, Caroline Lee said, oh, you should have given me that book because my mum was a botanist. I'm right across botany. That's amazing. So that's the kind of detail we like to keep about people, you know, and I've mentioned in the past in terms of language skills, second language skills or accent ability, that people, if they have a certain interest in a certain area, are top of our list going forth for narration. I mean, as we speak, the wonderful Christopher Brown is in the adjacent studio recording a book about developmental psychology, but he has, has a master's in psychology and So it's right up his street. Well, that's an incredible thing to actually suggest that people who want to get into audiobook narration actually put in their initial email. Always. I have all of these extra knowledge or expertise in this. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea because you never know what's underneath somebody's love of reading. Uh, We did do an amazing, very long occupational health and safety manual last year, a very important thing, something that needs to be made accessible. So we cast two people that we know are fabulous and they both did a great job. There was a lot of research because each of the separate chapters was on a completely different area. So everyone was specialised and so they just had to take their time. Do they often have multiple narrators? No, not normally. That occupational health and safety book I mentioned, it was actually around 50 hours long And the client wanted to include both male and female voices. And it was really just too much work to complete in the time frame for just one narrator alone. One area we should touch on is First Nations books. We've always done a lot of them here and we're very proud of the talent pool that we've developed in that area with some really great people. And that's kind of, I'd say it's sort of a half-half split about fiction and non-fiction. But obviously, in both instances, we have to be very, very careful and culturally sensitive as well. Mm. I know that we did a book that used a lot of Wiradjuri language, but luckily there's some great language sources out there 
partly those that the author herself relied on as well. But where possible, you know, we'll try and get direct consultation. It's really vital that we get that stuff right. And that goes to authenticity of voice casting as well. True. And, you know, there's a different kind of respect level. Yeah, and that's not just audiobooks. That's across all performance, yeah. Absolutely. Another thing that sometimes comes up with nonfiction is just the language itself is denser. You know, it's right. ideas and, again, pace. You just have to take your time and you really have to be on top of the sentence. A long sentence with subclauses and parenthetical sides, you've just got to be on top of it. You can't barge through it and hope that you're going to get out the other end because you're not going to. Mm. You know, once again, for anybody who wants to get into audiobook narration, it is absolutely about listening to the books in the area that you want to work. And listening to what they do, where are the pauses, why are the pauses? Ideally, it'd be nice if you had a copy of the text or the book or whatever, and then you can follow along with the reader. I mean, I think that's a great way to coach yourself. It's like, oh, that's the way she does that. That's why that sounds so good. A pause there where there's no comma mm. or, a, you know. And interestingly, when I worked at the ABC and we started having our content available as an episode you could download and we broadcast books in episodes or each day, the first I would know if the link to the episode was broken would be I'd come into work and I'd have had emails overnight from mainland China of people saying, where's the link, where's the link? Because they were people learning English as a second language and they were doing exactly what you said about following a text and listening to the audio to teach themselves the nuances yeah, of language. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, inflection, emphasis. Mm. So I know I kind of touched on casting briefly, but in your view, what makes a good narrator voice for nonfiction? Mm. Tricky question? Yeah, because <laughs> I guess it's subject to each book. I mean, there's going to be certain material you want just a very neutral read. And others, say, difficult material, you might want someone who's got a warm tone. That I think a good example of that was when we recorded The Trauma Cleaner by Sarah Krasnerstein, mm. an amazing oh. book about an amazing woman, Sandra Pankhurst. Yes, brilliant read too. Yeah, who mm. is a trauma cleaner, which means going into places where there's been a crime or a death or something and cleaning up. But it was also imbued in Sandra's own traumatic life story. So one of the reasons we chose Rachel is she's got a very warm voice, empathetic too. So that really added to the book. And sometimes a person can imbue the narrative with some of themselves in a way. So for example, we did the book The 80s by Frank Bongiorno, who's a historian. And Brian Daw read it for us. And you could kind of feel Brian's lived experience of the 80s in yeah, it. And yeah, that exactly. really kind of added warmth to it. Mm. But yeah, sometimes it is often requested by a client or publisher in nonfiction that the narrator have colour and express the work with dynamics, even when the content is a little dry. And sometimes we just need just a straight, neutral read. I mean, it has to be somebody who is, well, all audiobook narrators need to have a broad vocabulary. Oh, yeah. And be really across meaning. And otherwise, then it's, it's really about the book, isn't it? I've always said that one of the most important skills to bring to an audiobook is just general knowledge. Absolutely. And the broader your general knowledge, the more you know what you don't know. Yeah. And so you know what you need to check. Yes. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. so true. <laughs> That's so true. Never skip over a word and just leave it. You've got to make sure you know it. I mean, that's why I say to people, I know this sounds weird because you've got to prep a book, but don't go through any sentence without being really clear what that sentence means and in relation to where you've just been, where you are now, and where you're headed in the story. Yeah, nonfiction. It's such a big area. So broad. Well, there's going to be an awful lot more of it around. 
if not already, very soon. Anyway, it was fabulous to be with you again, Justine. I really enjoyed it. I have missed you. Yeah, me too. Anyway, we'll catch up with all of you very soon. Bye for now. Bye. You've been listening to the audiobook podcast brought to you by Square Sound. If there's something that we haven't covered in our audiobook series that you'd like to know about, send us a message at studio.squaresound.com.au. The audiobook podcast was produced by Marianne Plaza together with Abby Holmes and Justine Sloan-Lees. With special thanks to all our guest speakers, Square Sound is an audiobook and podcast studio in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening.